All right, Isaiah 2. You know, one of the really interesting things as we look at this passage is this is the season of Advent, which is the season leading up to Christmas. And in this time, Protestant churches around the world look at the same passages as they're awaiting the birth of Jesus. And so what's really cool is we're looking at a passage today in Isaiah 2 that the churches around the world are looking at and dwelling on right now. So let's look at that text, Isaiah 2, 1 to 5. This is what Isaiah, Amoz's son, saw concerning Ju Judah and Jerusalem. In the days to come, the mountains of the Lord's house, the mountain of the Lord's house, will be the highest of the mountains. It'll be lifted above the hills, and people will stream to it. Many nations will go and say, Come, let's go up to the Lord's mountain, to the house of Jacob's God, so that he may teach us his ways, and so that we may walk in God's paths. Instruction will come from Zion, the Lord's word from Jerusalem, and God will judge between the nations, settle disputes of mighty nations, and then they will beat their swords into plows and their spears into pruning tools. A nation will not take up sword against nation. They'll no longer learn how to make war. Come, house of Jacob, let's walk by the Lord's light. I was in Colorado a few weeks ago at a church there as part of a retreat. And it's a beautiful, beautiful church with this incredible panorama of the Rocky Mountains right behind it, right out the, the back door. Now, what's key in that last sentence is behind it, out the, the back door, that the church is not actually oriented facing that panorama of the Rocky Mountains. It's, it's oriented facing just a very plain neighborhood next to it. And I commented on, on that to the minister, that all, all the doors and windows are facing that neighborhood. And I said, this is a beautiful image of what it means to be church. You know, we're here for you. Our doors are open to you. Come on in. And he said, oh, that's not the reason. He said, the reason for that architectural decision facing the neighborhood instead of the mountains was the very real fear that if worshipers had a view of the mountains, they'd never pay attention to anything else. All right, that's what Isaiah is counting on here. Isaiah was a prophet of God hundreds of years before Jesus was born at a really difficult time in Israel's history. And one day he looks up and he catches this glimpse of what God is doing in the world, and it is tectonic. We sang, we just sang about this, as the mountains surround Jerusalem, and it's true, mountains do surround Jerusalem. But here in Isaiah's vision, the mountain of Jerusalem itself, on which sits on top the Lord's temple, the Lord's house, is rising up out of the ground above all other mountains, above all else on earth. And everything, everyone is being drawn towards it. And this geological shift is so significant that it's as if that its gravity itself has been altered. Uh, some of you were at the St. Jude Marathon yesterday. You'll see hands, hands, right? And what I imagine here is something like the start of the St. Jude Marathon, where this throbbing mass of people is heading in the same direction towards this mountain elevated above all else. The mountain of God in Isaiah's vision is not only distracting, it's irresistible. And mountains do have that kind of power over some people. They certainly have that power over me. That's why when it was my sabbatical in May, my family and I went to the mountains of Colorado and New Mexico. 
And maybe mountains are like that for you. Maybe it's another place. I know in Memphis, most people are drawn to the beach. And the beach is that place that you long for. For some of you, it's Disney and you go about 10 times a year. So you are drawn there, right? I think Christmas time reminds us of other places we long for. Maybe for you, it's your grandma or grandpa's house where y'all used to spend Christmas and you'd have hot cocoa by the fireplace on Christmas Eve. Maybe it's that first apartment you spent with your spouse when y'all were newly married and you had no money at Christmas time, but you had a lot of love and ramen noodles. You know, maybe it's the church you grew up in where some senior saint taught you the story of the birth of Jesus using an old faded flannel graph. And you think about those places and you long for them. The vision of those places in our minds creates this longing or this ache even, or maybe, maybe it's the longings in our heart remind us of those places. And we project onto those places the things that we most long for at some moment in our lives. And that's Isaiah here. He's got this vision of the Lord's mountain, the Lord's house rising up above all others and drawing all people towards, towards itself. And that place is all Isaiah can think about. But of course, the places in our mind and our imagination and memory do not always match those places in reality. Amen. I grew up at the, uh, in the Parsonage, which is the little house attached to the Central Avenue Church of Christ in Valdosta, Georgia, where my dad preached. And I've, I've shared before I learned to swim in the baptistry. That's not because my dad let me. It's because we would sneak over there and we had easy access, right? And so when dad was in the office, my sister and I would sneak over and do things like get in the baptistry, which we were not supposed to do, and I'm not advocating that. We would play hide and seek in the cavernous auditorium. And at the end of every worship service, we would run up on stage and we would jump off. And it just felt impossibly dangerous to do that. And I remember going back to Central Avenue Church of Christ when I was 20, walking into the auditorium and thinking, this is not as big as I remember. You know, the stage was two steps high. And I couldn't do a cannonball in that baptistry. The places in our minds don't always match those places in our, in our realities. And you do wonder how Isaiah's vision compared to his reality. You know, here he's got this vision of this mountain, and God is present on this mountain in such a powerful way. He's instructing everyone coming to this mountain. He is gathering all who are coming to this mountain. He is present on this mountain in such a powerful way that no one has anything to fight about anymore. So they turn all their weapons into farming tools because why would you fight when you're in the presence of God? And then he wakes up in that Jerusalem, and the place he is in looks really different from the place he was imagining. The newspapers at the time are dominated by these headlines of impending war. At the time, northern Israel and southern Judah are preparing to fight each other, so they're turning all their farming tools into swords and not the other way around. And they're aligning themselves with different superpowers. And as the story plays out, Assyria, this great empire, is going to use Jerusalem as a crutch to overthrow northern Israel. And in that story, Jerusalem is hardly a mountain of God attracting all people to itself, right? It is this crutch of empire is all that it is. In his lifetime, Isaiah's vision does not materialize, which makes us wonder what was he really longing for? Many of you 
probably remember that Lindsay's grandmother, Nani, passed away this past year. And Lindsay was incredibly close to Nani. Her house was three to five minutes from Lindsay's house growing up. And Lindsay's parents would have to leave early for work every day. So they would pick up Lindsay and her sister out of their beds, still in their pajamas, and they would take them down the street to Nani's house. And Nani would have a pallet laid out on the floor waiting for them with breakfast made ready for them and cartoons already on the TV. At Nani's house, she had this uh, where the pallet was laid, 1970s orange shag carpet. And she didn't just have that in the 90s when Lindsay was growing up. She had that up until last year. And her bathroom had this mint green tile everywhere and a mint green tub and a mint green toilet in this bathroom. Anybody got a bathroom like that? You know what I'm talking about. She even had that orange shag carpet into the kitchen itself. The kitchen was carpeted. And Lindsay loved that place. I'll never forget four years ago when Foster was born, our second child. Lindsay had this deep desire to go to her grandma's house to take Foster to her grandma's house. And you know, when, when Lindsay is pregnant, maybe some of you have been pregnant know about this, she had cravings for different foods, but, but without a doubt, every time Lindsay gave birth, she began to crave places. And typically it was her grandmother's house. And I don't know why. I think maybe it's because giving birth seems to be kind of hard. I mean, guys, there's probably harder stuff in that, right? That... No, it's hard, right? It's hard, and it's painful. And Grandma's house was this place where nothing was hard. And she was taken care of and comforted, and she wanted to go so bad. But of course, we have this brand-new baby, and traveling to Texas, right, when you have a brand-new baby, is hard. And so I'll never forget when a week after Foster was born, Lindsay's parents loaded up her feeble grandmother, 87-year-old grandmother, in the car and drove her to Memphis. She walks through the door, and, like, instantly, that longing for her grandmother's house is satisfied. Because she wasn't longing for her grandmother's house. She was longing for Nani, Right? And I wonder if that's what's going on here in Isaiah. And I wonder if that's what Christmas is really about. Here's Isaiah's vision of this holy mountain so distracting that its gravitational pull attracts everyone to it. He's describing this place. And let's pay attention again. Look back at this passage and notice what I've put and read here. This is what Isaiah, Amos's son, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. In the days to come, the mountain of the Lord's house will be the highest of the mountains, It'll be lifted above the hills and people will stream to it. And many nations will go and they'll say, come, let's go to the Lord's mountain, to the house of Jacob's God, so that he may teach us his ways and we may walk in God's paths. Instruction will come from Zion, the Lord's word from Jerusalem. God will judge between the nations, settle disputes, of mighty nations. And then they'll beat their swords into iron plows their spears into pruning tools. A nation will no longer take up sword against nation. They'll no longer learn how to make war. Come, house of Jacob, let's walk by the Lord's light. Are you reminded of anything as we read that passage, passage a second time? Are you reminded of, of anyone? Let's look at this. Notice in verse 3 that the Lord's ways are taught on this mountain. Do you remember what Jesus said of himself in John 14? 
I am the way. I know you remember what John said of Jesus at the beginning of his gospel. In the beginning was the word. That's Jesus, the word of the Lord. And wouldn't you know it, that's there in verse 3 in Isaiah chapter 2. And now the thought of God judging all the nations may make us anxious, but we have always known that Jesus would do that very thing because Jesus said about himself, speaking in third person, the people of every nation will be gathered in front of him, Jesus, and he will separate them as a shepherd separates the sheep and the goats. Now, a good reminder to couple with this talk about Jesus as judge is that God's judgments settle disputes and end wars. That's why in this passage, everyone is turning their weapons of violence into to farming tools. And we have a word for that, peace, peace. You probably remember what Paul says of Jesus in Ephesians, he himself is our peace. And then this passage ends with a call that we would walk by the Lord's light. And I am reminded that in Jesus, the true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. Well, let's pause here. Do I think Isaiah was talking about Jesus? No. I think Isaiah saw a place just like he described in his vision. But like Paul says, in this life, our visions are foggy. It's like looking into the reflection of a mirror and not looking face to face in this life. Do I think he was describing Jesus? No. Isaiah believed he was longing for a place. But you and I know the truth that Isaiah was not longing for a place. He was longing for a person. He was longing for Jesus Christ, who is crucified in Jerusalem on a mountain and taken back up into heaven on a mountain. I'll give you this analogy. One of the preachers I enjoy a lot, he talks about going to the English countryside and visiting these little English country villages. And he says, in any village you go to in England, there are avenues and alleyways and thoroughfares, and you explore those, and you may stop by a little shop and buy crumpets and tea and other things English people he said, but ultimately, there is a road in every English town that heads towards London. I think that's what you see here in this passage. That Isaiah was dealing with things that were difficult and hard, and his vision immediately responded to those longings based on the Jerusalem he was living into, but that every passage we read in Scripture like this one is ultimately being drawn towards Christ. Just like every heart in this world, every heart in this room believes that we long for places and things and even people, but the reality is that all of our longings are fulfilled in one person, and that person is Jesus Christ, who is pulling each of us towards himself. You know, the reason that we read Isaiah's vision and believe that it is laced with language that Christians now apply to Jesus is because we know something to be true, that Jesus fulfills what God's people have always truly longed for. And because of that, like this mountain, he is drawing all people towards himself. I was at a conference a few weeks ago, and it's a conference about the decline in Christianity in the West, and even the decline among churches of Christ. And that's some info I'll share with you in coming weeks. It was not an encouraging conference. 
And there I am at this conference, and I'm a part of a text chain with a group of guys here at Highland, and I get a text with a headline. It's a link to a story from this group of guys. And the headline is something like, Kanye West is a born-again evangelical. Okay, names I thought I would never say in church. Number one, Kanye West. High on the list, right? Now, Kanye West, in his career as a hip-hop artist and a public figure, has managed to alienate just about every community on the planet by doing and saying things that are hard for us to wrap our minds around but are not totally surprising from someone who released a song entitled, I Am God. But what's fascinating is is with Kanye West, you have song lyrics, albums attached to each season of his life. And I, I mean, ask yourself, if I had songs written in each season of my life, would I have ever had a song called I Am God? You bet I would have. I mean, how many days of my life, even this last week, did I act like, oh, I'm God. I've got this. Fortunately, we don't have those albums. But with Kanye, you do. And what's fascinating is you can track this trajectory that he's been on. For instance, he lost his mother and he's saying this. Goodbye, my friend. I won't ever love again, ever again. And then Kanye and his musical career has been notorious for his depiction of women, which has often been terrible. And then Kanye had his first daughter, North, and he rapped this. He said, Father, forgive me. I'm scared of the karma because now I see women as something to nurture and not something to conquer. And then in 2016, he releases an album which is this pouring out of his soul. And and the things he describes are exactly the kind of things we see on Isaiah's mountain, but which apparently Kanye didn't have. He says this, I'm looking for more, somewhere to feel safe and end my holy war. And then there I was at this conference about the decline in Christianity in the West, reading this article about how Kanye West is now a Christian and his newest album just released called Jesus is King where he's got lines like this, you should be made free to whom the sun set free is free indeed. He saved a wretch like me. Do you see the progression from I am God to Jesus is King? Now, some of us may be skeptical. Maybe this is all a, a publicity stunt. Maybe Kanye is as egotistical as ever. But frankly, I just want to let all that go and trust that maybe the power of Jesus is more gravitational than even I believe. That Jesus does not only satisfy my longings, but that he is the only one who satisfies anyone's longings. That it does not matter how much money or fame or access you have, that all of us are looking for more, looking for someone. And he's the one we're looking for. I'll end by reminding you that from the moment Jesus was born, that shepherds and wise men and even angels have been drawn to him. And that in his ministry, men and women of all social castes and shapes and sizes were drawn to him. And that as Paul tells us, he is not far from any one of us. He has come and made his dwelling among us. He has, he has come Near, that's what we remember at Christmas, which means his residence is no longer far away on some distant mountain, as he tells the woman at the well, but it is now in each of our hearts. And because of that, the very gravitational forces of this world have been realigned. They have been recalibrated.
And Christ Jesus is drawing all to himself. He is pulling all to himself until at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen? Amen. Let's stand and sing. If you haven't given your life to Jesus, I'd love to receive you today in baptism. Or pray with you in the back with our shepherds. Let's worship together. Oh, Lord God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven or earth below.